As is our custom, I'm going to introduce the scripture, tell you a few words about it and where it comes from before you hear it. Today's reading comes from 1 Corinthians. It is Paul's first letter to the Corinthian people. Paul was an early apostle. He did not know Jesus personally. He was converted to become a follower of Jesus after he had been a hater of the Christians, somebody who had persecuted them. Paul turns his life around after his conversion experience and begins to start churches in towns like Corinth, which would be a town in Greece, a city in Greece that still exists today. And because Paul and the other disciples could not be everywhere at one time, Paul would write letters to the churches that would be read aloud when they might gather in somebody's living room or around a table. And now, all these years later, over 2,000 years later, we read Paul's letters as if they could have been written to us as well, because it is amazing how whatever the struggles were of the little gatherings of people that he wrote to all that long ago, they still apply to us. In this case, Paul is addressing what must have been some kind of conflict in the church about what talents and gifts were the most important and how to figure out who was the best equipped to follow Jesus. And this, this is how Paul responded. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were enticed and led astray to idols that could not speak. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one is speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the discernment of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by, activated by one and the same Spirit who allots to each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses. It's challenging to imagine how different the church that Paul wrote to was from churches today. 
If you're sitting here, you are in an institutional church, an institution that has had a building since 1839. It was originally a log cabin, and then as the institution of First Congregational grew, it became this glorious building that we care for today. But obviously, institutions are much more than buildings. There were generations of people, and some of you are sitting in pews that might have the name of somebody on a plaque. Anybody sitting in a pew like that? Some of you are. You may not have even noticed it, but they are scattered throughout. Um, these were the mighty cloud of witnesses who went before us and invested their time, their talent, their treasure in this institutional church. Eventually, um, the little churches that Paul is writing to that are sitting in somebody's house or meeting somewhere are going to figure out they need to connect with each other to do the work of Jesus and to do more than they could do alone. And probably initially they connected because they needed encouragement. They were getting persecuted. They had turned away from the dominant religion, the pagan religion, and so they needed that support. And so in a sense, Paul is kind of like the first denominational official. It's kind of like a bishop or somebody who is not there with the church but is encouraging them from afar. Later, the Emperor Constantine is going to convert to Christianity, and that will change everything because suddenly you will have the Holy Roman Empire, and Christianity becomes their not only state religion, but the empire-wide religion. But at the time Paul's writing, it's much more dispersed. As you know, though, the church... Um, becomes the Church of the Holy Roman Empire. You have an Eastern Orthodox, you have the Catholic wing, you have the Reformation, you have the various splits, you have perhaps the most um, groundbreaking invention of the printing press where suddenly ordinary Christians can read things like Paul's letter for themselves. And it is in those early days that the Congregational Church is born in England, and they then take refuge in Holland, and some of them get on a ship called the Mayflower and come to this land. They settle in New England. That is just the congregational heritage, the stream that formed this church. But in 1957, our denomination's name becomes the United Church of Christ. And it is a merger of that congregational stream from England, the Christian connection here, and evangelical and reformed churches from Germany. These were Protestants in Germany who were not Lutherans, but had more theologically in common with us. And mixed into those are all kinds of fascinating movements, including a group called the Brotherhood of German immigrants in Russia who then ended up here. And they all shared in common a strong belief in lay ministry, meaning the laity, not the clergy like me, not people like me who love Jesus so much we are willing to accept a salary for it, right? The real Christians, <laughs> the real Christians, the laity, the non-clergy, right? They believed in a strong ministry of the laity. 
And those early Congregationalists and throughout our denomination, the United Church of Christ, they didn't like the idea of a bishop or hierarchy that would tell you what to do. They didn't hold with the idea um, that you could have your minister appointed and then taken away and moved somewhere else, right? They believed that together we were the ministers of the church together and that the clergy, I am a member of the church, just like all of you. At the annual meeting, I have one vote, just like all of you. But I have the privilege, the honor of um, being set aside by the congregation to receive education and training so that I can teach you about scripture and the history of the church. But there was no sense in our tradition that the minister was above somebody else. And you see how faithful that is to the early days where where Paul is saying, like, yes, there are different gifts. There are people among you who may be called to be teachers or preachers, but there are a whole variety of gifts here. And all of us have some gift like this. He's later going to talk about the body of Christ and how every single piece is important, the toe, the nose, the head, the heart. He's always making this point. And 2,000 years later, we still live it out. Our denomination, the United Church of Christ, is um, large in influence historically, and I would say currently, but relatively small in number. And I explored that question because this past week, I was teaching a required class for um, seminary students who are preparing to become pastors in the United Church of Christ. It is called the History, Theology, and Polity of the United Church of Christ. Um, and with a title like that, you're probably not the only one thinking, nobody looks forward to that course. Does not sound interesting. Future pastors, you know, they can understand the value of a course on preaching or Bible or pastoral care. Even the word polity, it really means just sort of the governmental structural organization. Yes, the word is related um, etymologically to, to politics. And people think, oh, really? To learn about uh, that piece of it? And yet, of course, they also love the United Church of Christ because they have found themselves in churches in the United Church of Christ, and now they will be serving these churches, and so they probably need to know a little bit more about this denominational structure. And at this moment in their process, as they're trying to become ministers, they are forced to learn it, right? This is a, a process, this is where our denomination does have power, is that it is part of determining who will be a pastor and who will not. But true to our polity, true to our way of being, um, understanding many gifts, it is not an individual bishop who decides, oh, you're fit for ministry or you are not. It is a committee, and our committees are always made up of a balance of ministers and lay people, and a recognition that everybody has different gifts Everybody gets one vote on that. Our denomination in the, in the United States, before there even was a United States, back when we were colonies, 
Our denomination, um, the historic streams of it that would become the UCC, is well known for being early out on important issues of the day. This is where I say we are not as large in number but in influence. And just to give you a sense of our numbers, we probably have fewer than one million members in this country. Um, Catholics would have over 50 million. Uh, Methodists would have over 10 million, right? And that is just in this country. An interesting thing about our denomination, we are not international. We are just here. So then you think of other denominations like the Methodists or the Catholics or the Anglicans or the Baptists who consider themselves to be worldwide. But for a tiny little denomination, we have done amazing things. Many believe that American democracy was shaped by the democratic leanings of the churches in which the members had a vote. Uh, in the history of the UCC, um, I've talked about the congregational side a lot because that's kind of my favorite because that's our stream. But on the evangelical reform side of these German churches, there's fascinating history there too. For example, it was um, a reformed congregation that saved the Liberty Bell in 1777. When the British occupied Philadelphia, um, and they planned to melt down the Liberty Bell to manufacture cannons, uh, the bell was safely hidden under the floorboards of the old Zion Reformed Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. That was one of our churches in that other German stream. We ordained the first African-American pastor in 1785, took early stands against slavery, ordained the first woman pastor in 1853, and even the beautiful serenity prayer that you said this morning has a connection. It was, again, on that German side that became the UCC, evangelical and reformed theologian Reinhold Niebuhr preached a sermon that introduced the world to the now famous serenity prayer that is said so often in 12-step meetings and that we say on Sunday mornings many times, God, give us the grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, the courage to change the things that should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. That was how he wrote it in his first sermon, and later it was wordsmithed into the form that you see today. There are so many other historic firsts. The, um, one of the big ones in recent years being 2005, the UCC passes marriage equality for all people regardless of gender orientation or sexual orientation. And they pass that long before even states have legalized gay marriage. We tend to be early out and prophetic on issues, and yet relatively small as a stream. In the class with my seminary students, I want to tell you that first I have great hope for the future of the United Church of Christ because every one of these people was a fascinating combination of the kind of gifts and talents that Paul talks about. But what a diverse group. The class was as big a bunch of mutts as you all are. 
And they, um, they represented people who were raised Catholic and people who were raised with no religion whatsoever, Methodist, um, fundamentalist, Christian, the whole nine yards. There were um, a few who were raised in the United Church of Christ, but they were even shocked to discover that their local church that they came up in was not the same as all the other churches in the UCC because one of the things about our denomination is the freedom of the individual congregation to be who it is. So one of the lessons in UCC polity that I teach the seminarians is I say, when you've seen one UCC church, you have seen one UCC church. Um, and you all know this. Sometimes you'll tell me when you're going on vacation or you're going to Arizona, and um, we'll go on the computer, and I'll say, oh, this is a great UCC church you should visit. And you come back and you say, well, it, they weren't doing it right. <laughs> Don't they know how to be UCC? <laughs> you know? Yes, they do. They do. You have UCC churches that are such a variety. Even the architecture itself. We are the old historic um, architecture of the Congregationalists who did not believe in center aisles. But later, as churches went on, most UCC churches would have a center aisle. It's something very special about ours that we retain that history. The students in the class, of course, also believed a variety of things. And one of the core questions when you teach seminarians about the denomination is they will say at some point, okay, but what do we believe, right? Now, this is what we believe. We believe that statements of faith should not be used as tests of belief. Let me unpack that. When we say on a Sunday morning, like today we said the serenity prayer, um, we are not saying this so you can go through each piece of it and check it off yes or no. It is not meant to be a list to say, well, do I really believe that if I surrender to your will? This is an expression of faith. Now I've told you by who, an amazing theologian and wonderful human being who who later this found its way into 12-step meetings and spread in ways that he as a theologian could never have imagined when he began to use this wording in a sermon. But similarly, there are times when we will say together the Apostles' Creed. Creed comes from the Latin, I believe, and that is an ancient, ancient statement of the church, much wider than any one denomination. And then sometimes we will recite the United Church of Christ statement of faith, uh, which is like four times as long as everybody else's. Because that is sort of what happens when you write by committee and you are intensely democratic. Um, we tend to be a big tent that has a lot of words and wants room for everybody to be there. But this is key. All these statements of faith, they are testimonies of faith, not tests of faith. A testimony of faith is an expression of faith as surely as the words to immortal invisible 
God Only Wise, that we sang in the hymn this morning. That is a beautiful expression of faith from a given time and place that is so special, so beautifully worded that it has stood the test of time. It is not a test of faith. It is not a checklist. And for some of you, you may have come from a different Christian tradition in which maybe the Apostles' Creed was used as a checklist. If you don't believe this, 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 you cannot be a Christian. Or maybe there was an entirely different checklist, that you had to be baptized as an adult, and you had to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You had to affirm the virgin birth. Da, 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 da. That is a recent um, movement in American religious history that was never our movement. We always said these should never be used as a test to exclude or include somebody. And that is why we say a variety of prayers, creeds, and songs. But in the class, in the class, people start to get nervous because they say, okay, I have experienced this UCC church, and now I might be called to be a pastor in a church somewhere else, and what is it going to be like? And what are the rules? We tend to have very little hierarchy. And I am always open with the students that this is in some ways wonderful and in some ways very difficult. Where it is wonderful is that we as a congregation can determine um, the ways in which we will be in ministry in this moment in time. And it is not top-down. So let's just take as an example um, the crisis of COVID-19. This was an example where in our polity, in our denomination, we saw the ways we were different from other denominations. Um, we as a congregation had to discern the will of God for ourselves about when to be open, what to do how to handle that. And we were granted no special crystal ball or special knowledge, right? But in humility, we had to discern what God was calling us to do. And there were times during that crisis where I was deeply envious of people in other denominations where it was simple as a top-down decision. Catholics, this is what y'all are going to do in Iowa. The Methodist bishop writes a letter, here's the plan, right? Um, in our tradition, um, our conference minister can write a letter, but it does not tell us what we must do. There were times where I was envious of traditions that had that, but for the most part, I was grateful. Um, I was grateful for the respect that understands that we know who we are as First Congregational Dubuque and that um, one size does not fit all and that what might make sense for a rural congregation with three families attending might be different from us, a large congregation that still has to feed hungry people in the middle of downtown in a city where there were more threats to our health than just the one virus. 
With that comes, though, enormous responsibility. And in our system, um, in the UCC, we are democratic, but it doesn't mean we vote on everything. This organization is too large and complex for us to have called everybody together for a meeting every Friday to figure out what we were going to do on that Sunday, right? And so in our polity, rather than entrusting the leadership to a hierarchy that would tell us all what to do, you all entrust the leadership to each other. You chose people to serve as leaders of the congregation, and those people had to meet week after week to determine what to do. And that is such a powerful expression of what Paul is saying here. He is saying no one person has all these gifts, but if you all come together, or even if a few of you come together, respect that somebody may have the gift of prophecy. Somebody may have the gift, and here I don't interpret this as something magical, but certain people have the gift of understanding the outcomes of actions and what could happen. Others have the gift of preaching, of explaining, of motivating. It talks in here about um, some people have the gift of speaking in tongues and some people can interpret tongues. There were, um, at the time, there, there's different interpretations of that. One is that if you've ever gone to a church where people speak in tongues, it may sound like a language you've never heard of before. It was sometimes perceived to be a mark of the Holy Spirit. But I also tend to take things in a practical way. I think there are people whose gift it is to understand the different languages we speak. And here I don't just mean French versus Japanese. I mean the different emotional languages, the different cultural languages. There are people who have the gift of sitting in a room with an engineer and a preschool teacher and translating them to each other, right? That is a gift of interpreting tongues. People with the gift of listening. In the UCC, as the seminarians prepare for ordination, they don't only have to take United Church of Christ polity. They have a long list of other things they have to do, educationally speaking, in all kinds of ways. But ultimately, their future is determined at the beginning and the end of the journey by the local congregation. It is very fitting. If somebody in our church wants to become a minister, they have to start with us. And they would maybe speak to me, and then we would go to the deacons. And then unless this church sends them forward and says, we see some combination of these gifts in this person, it doesn't happen. So in our system, for example, you couldn't just walk in off the street having never been a part of a church and apply to become a pastor. It has to begin with a congregation. And then you are placed in the hands of this larger structure that does have levels of bureaucracy and layers because that's helpful in trying to help standardize things. And, and yet this is what is a denomination we are not very good at um, because ultimately 
when we gather to ordain people, we do it locally. We don't just do it as a congregation, but we do do it locally with other congregations around us. And at the end of the journey, after someone's gone to school and done this and taken my class and all of this, they still have to have a congregation that says, we want you to be our pastor. And if that doesn't happen, then all the rest of it was for naught. It begins and ends with a local church saying, we see these gifts in you. Because in our tradition, you have to be ordained to something like that. The frustration of the students, of course, is that in each locale where they are, the requirements are somewhat different in between those steps. And at one point, um, the National Church has gotten together and tried to standardize this, and we have thick manuals on ministry. And the title of it is supposed to be Manual on Ministry, you know, and every committee that looks at seminarians is supposed to have this manual and follow it. And um, the title of it is abbreviated to say MOM, which is kind of unfortunate, because at meetings when people get mad at each other, they say, well, MOM says on page 65 that this is what you're supposed to do. But the reality is, it's still the decision of the local bodies whether to even follow mom on page 62. At one point um, in that process, they came up with a checklist of the marks of ministry. Paul says it in a short paragraph, right? Um, we came up with a list in the UCC. The marks of faithful and effective ministry, it includes things like uh, following Jesus Christ, communicating passion for the oneness of Christ, exhibiting knowledge and understanding of the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, uh, engaging in mission and outreach, respecting the dignity of all God's people. I would read the whole thing to you, but unfortunately there are 48 of them. Okay. This is this quirky, interesting family that we find ourselves in. And yet, and yet, what an amazing opportunity to have that freedom. Freedom to not only govern yourselves as a church, but freedom to believe what you believe. Freedom to know that when we recite a creed together, it is not a test meant to exclude you, but it is an invitation into something beautiful. And so I'm going to share with you something very beautiful um, that came as a gift from the class just to show you something of who we are in this strange and quirky denomination. I asked the students to do an exercise that I would actually commend to all of you. I said, I want you to sit down with a, with a pen and paper or at a screen, whatever goes quickest, and I want you to set a timer for eight minutes, and you can't have any longer than that. And I want you to write your statement of faith. Just want you to write, what do you believe? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about the world? Now, because they're seminarians and because you all are church people, you might start with some of the prayers we say at the beginning of worship, you know, you might even remember some of them, like the statement of faith or the peace prayer or serenity prayer or something. But I left it open. And then what I did is I plucked um, one or two sentences from each student's 
statement. And I wove them all together in a big document that I then read back to them um, and that I would like to read to you because I think you will find in it a great gift. You will hear sincere expressions of faith, some of which might seem to contradict each other, some of which might echo the deepest yearnings of your own heart. But to me, they encompass the beauty and freedom of this tradition. I believe in the triune God, God the Father, seated on the left hand of the Son and Holy Spirit, having different responsibilities for the body of Christ. I believe in God the Mother and Father, who is ultimate love and created and continues to create the universe of love. I believe in the Farther Almighty. Side note, typo, Holy Spirit, or brilliant wordsmithing. I believe God is a form of energy that created us all, and as a result, some qualities of God dwell within us, and we are surrounded by God's essence. Jesus was the ultimate politician who was working against the Roman Empire. He died because of his mission, which proved to be the ultimate sacrifice, which then teaches us the ultimate act of love is to sacrifice oneself for others. Through Jesus, we are given the gift of grace and forgiveness and a life to model ourselves after. I believe in the liberation of Christ and that Jesus, through his words and works, has set before us a path that we must choose to walk that will liberate all of God's people so that they will all be equal and through that equality they may be unified. I believe that the divine has instilled in and connected each sentient being from the beginning. I believe suffering is the result of attachment to that which is not divine. I have always felt lost and found at the same time, at peace with my heavenly father, but displaced in my earthly vessel. I believe that the purpose of the church is not to remain a palace filled with treasure, but a place where people gather in a sacred space to offer up sacred worship to the one who knows all and is in all. I believe that evil and nothingness that we yield to grieves the heart of God. But I believe in the gift of human agency namely the possibility of loving ourselves and loving others truly. I once met a spiritual mother, an advisor, from a totally different faith tradition, who walked beside me as I was trying to come to terms with my personal story and how it fit in the larger narrative of the trajectory that would one day be my life. I see faith as essentially grounding and creative. I am a lover of tradition and ritual, as well as the transcendent new dimensions that are revealed as my life unfolds. 
in my life, faith is choosing the thing that requires the most courage. We will never fully catch, grasp everything that we belong to or beyond us. I believe that we can go beyond the veil and pray in secret and that God will answer our prayers openly. I believe that God is free to be other than what we imagine, individually and collectively, yet God is discoverable in every act of grace. And finally, beloved God, help us abide with you always so that our minds, hearts, spirits, and bodies will be filled with your grace that enables us to be your instruments of meaningful change. Friends, the future of the church is in good hands. Amen.